0: that is worth repeating, isn't it? But thank you so, so much uh, to Kirsty and to those who have been leading us in our, our singing of praise to God over the course of this Lord's Day. And we all have our favorite hymns, our favorite psalms, our favorite spiritual songs. Certainly that gets fed back to me sometimes indirectly, sometimes very directly when I'm in people's homes, when I'm in my own home as well. Um, and you know, I've got a wife who, if I, if I tell you this now, then the pressure will grow, but talks a lot about metrical psalms and how there should be many more metrical psalms. And some people tell me that we have too much of the organ or not. You know how it goes, but we all have our favorite hymns, hymns that speak to us in a particular way. Um, songs of praise. I don't watch songs of praise, I have to admit, but. Songs of Praise did a survey, oh, nearly 10 years ago now, looking at the the favorite hymns of Christians across the UK. And maybe a reflection of the time when it was done in third place, Be Still for the Presence of the Lord. Wouldn't make my top 100, to be honest, but there you go. No accounting for taste. It was number three, Be Still. Number two, probably because it was in at number one at the time in terms of its popularity in Christ alone. And number one, How Great Thy Art. So, there you go, those are the, How Great Thy Art is the favored or favorite hymn in the UK. But I wonder, did you know that the New Testament contains many hymns within its words? They were the hymns that would have been used by the believers in that church of Jesus Christ, that church of the first believers. Indeed, what we read tonight in Colossians chapter 1, if you open your Bibles again and look at Colossians 1 and look in particular at verses 15 to 20, as is the case in other parts of Paul's letters, most notably maybe Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, here Paul is quoting words that are not actually his own, but which we believe to be a hymn that had become popular in that early church of the first believers in Jesus Christ. And what a hymn it is. That's the thing about hymns. Hymns serve a double purpose when we gather together as God's people. First and foremost, they are a means of glorifying God. God takes delight in your singing of His praise. And and it's important to know that. That would be a great motivation to actually open our mouths and praise Him, and to be enthusiastic in our singing of His praise. But then the great benefit for us is that in fellowship together, and there are particular moments when we are singing together, and there's a good number of people here, and the volume lifts up, and you hear the words, you hear your fellow believers singing to you the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's Word. These are a great way of reminding ourselves of the truth. Just think of the hymns that we have been singing together tonight. You know, those first two, crown him with many crowns, you're the Word of God the Father, a big span in the ages between when those hymns were written, but the truth that they contain. Indeed, very often in people's lives, in moments of stress or difficulty, often when people are in hospital and cut off from fellowship with other people. It is the words of hymns, maybe even more so than the words of Scripture that we can tend to recall. We think, oh yeah, and I sometimes hear people when I'm with them in hospital quote back after I've read with them a hymn or a verse of a hymn that just really resonates with them at that time and reminds them of the confidence that they can have in Christ Jesus. And as we look at Colossians as a a one-off tonight and as we look at these verses in Colossians chapter 1, you would soon realize if you read the whole of this letter and did a bit of research into the background of this letter that the church here, this Colossian church, was a church that needed to be reminded of the truth about Christ. And so Paul's great message to the Colossians, if we were to sum it up like this, And I was never good at at, um, formulas and maths, but here's a formula up on the blackboard tonight that Christ plus nothing equals everything. In other words, Jesus is all that we need. That's the bottom line. And it's not just the message of Colossians. That, of course, is the message of the, the whole gospel, that when it comes to life, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to our relationship with God, there is nothing that we need other than Jesus. And so, there are no other things that we should be pursuing and trying to find other than Jesus Himself, who is found through faith. And tonight we come to this passage that that proclaims this, perhaps more than any other. It is this hymn that shouts out the supremacy of Christ, And why was that such an important hymn for the people in this church to be reminded of? What was going on? What was the state of play here in the Colossian church? Well, remarkably early in its life, because this was not an old congregation. So, very soon after it had been planted by Paul and formed and had started to grow as a congregation, it was exposed to wrong teaching. And that wrong teaching was like a cancer that was spreading through the body of Christ in this particular place. And what was in particular a problem was some very wrong teaching, some very strange ideas about the nature and the identity of Christ Himself. And when you think about it, there is nothing that is more serious and indeed dangerous than a wrong view of Christ. After all, He is at the very center of our faith. He is the one who we put our faith in. He is the, as we'll sing just in a while, the cornerstone, the, the capstone on which our church is built. He is the sole head and king of our church. For all of these reasons and more, it is so important that we do not deviate in our thinking about Jesus and begin to adopt wrong ideas about who He is, about what He has done. This is a great reminder to us, isn't it, of how quickly things can unravel in our own lives as believers and in the life of a fellowship like ours as well. We know those who would have laid behind the establishing of this church, and we know the message, the apostolic message that they brought To think of this congregation still in its infancy embracing all kinds of other wrong and false ideas is a great corrective to us tonight. It's a great warning to us. It's a warning to me and to you individually and to us corporately as the body of Christ. To be on our guard in how we listen to teaching and receive teaching, to be on our guard in our own study of God's Word as well, and to make study of God's Word central in our lives. So, let's turn to this passage then, and in particular, verses 15 to 20, and it's one that the the Colossian believers needed to hear. This church needed it, and our church needs it as well. We need it in our lives. And ultimately, it is a passage that will lead us to praise the Lord Jesus And like any truth, it needs to be applied in our lives. It needs to be lived out. It needs to to make a difference. And I want you to keep that in mind this evening, that what we're hearing is not just a lecture, it's something much more, that we're hearing God's living Word. What will it do to us tonight? What will it mean for us tomorrow? When we go back to work or later this week, as people start to go back to school, what will it mean for us in the choices that we make and in our life at home and elsewhere as well? So, look with me again at this passage, and we think about the preeminence. That's the word that is used in the ESV, preeminent. We think about the preeminence or the supremacy of Christ this evening. What is it that makes him stand out above all others? What is it that makes him the greatest? What is it that makes him the best or better as we've been thinking about over this week? And a number of reasons. I think there are six. Don't panic. It's not six big full-on elongated points, but here they are. First of all, Paul tells us that Jesus is eternal, And that the relationship that exists between Him and the Father is an eternal one. So, that Paul says of Christ in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. And that's similar to what the writer to the Hebrews says of Christ in Hebrews 1 verse 3. Remember there, he says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, So, while God cannot be physically seen in one sense, and certainly not seen by us sitting here or standing here in this church tonight, God has made Himself known to us so clearly through Jesus, through God incarnate. And so, to truly know God, we must look to Jesus. And and we're told in verse 17 that Christ is before all things. Think about that. He was before all that we know around us. If we get a bit philosophical about this for a moment, that He was before time and space. God was, God the Son was already there. He is eternal. He is God. And that's a theological thing, and so sometimes we shy away from that. We think, well, that would just short-circuit my mind. It would blow some kind of fuse in my brain. So, I'll not think too deeply about that. But the Bible invites us and commands us to think upon these things, to reflect deeply on these truths about Christ because they're so important. Think about it. These days, it seems that everyone has their own idea about God. and, And we hear that, don't we? I hear that you know, or see that in social media. The God I believe in, that's that's a preface to so many statements. Really, they're statements that are made out of complete ignorance and just an idea of what we might like things to be. The God I believe in, He would never think that, or He would never say that, or He would never do that. The God that I believe in would do this and would be like this. And it becomes so subjective, and again, it becomes all about me, God made in my image. And that is ultimate blasphemy, God made in my image. He has created me in His image. And Christ is is most worthy of our adoration and our love and our allegiance because, because of Him. We don't have to guess what God is like, or worse, we do not have to create our own image of who God is, that everything that we need to know about God is revealed in and through Jesus. Think about that. That is a great thing. So, He is eternal, and then secondly, He is the Creator, very much tied up in that first point. So, look at what this great hymn of praise tells us about Jesus in verses 15 and 16. At the end of verse 15, we're told that He is the firstborn of all creation. It continues in verse 16, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And we need to understand there what is meant by that word firstborn at the end of verse 15 when it says that He is the firstborn of all creation because some have wrongly argued that Jesus Himself was therefore created, that He was somehow born. That's not what this is about. It means simply that He is supreme. He is preeminent in creation because everything has been made by Him and for Him. Now, again, that's theology, and some people shy away from that, and they think, oh, that's not really for me. This is so important, and it's so helpful for us as we look to Jesus. What does it mean for us? Well, it gives us amazing reasons to to worship and praise Jesus, because He is supreme over creation. But notice the phrase that all things were created through Him and for Him. And then think about who we are. We are created people. We are created things. We have been made for Jesus. And so in this verse, we also find our purpose, why it is that we're here and what life is all about. So He is Eternal, he is the creator, but then third, he is the head of the church. And we say that there is, therefore, nobody greater than him in the church. That's one of the great things in our Presbyterian and our Reformed tradition, that at services of significance and importance, that we are very publicly stating this, that Jesus is the sole king and head of the church. We don't have a pope and ministers and and elders and and people of importance in terms of their function within the church are not the people for whom the church is for and the people who are the head of the church. That's not what we believe. We believe in a priesthood of all believers and we are all under the authority of Jesus who is the sole king and head of the church. As Scripture tells us here in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. And that's such a simple foundational truth right at the center of this hymn. But think about what it means for us because it impacts our attitude to the church. If Jesus is head over the church, that means that the church is important and we should have a high view of the church as God Himself does, that we are the bride of Christ. But it also impacts what we think of our place in the church, that when we realize that this church has one sole head, then we don't get big ideas about ourselves, whoever we are, whatever role we might fulfill. It should result in greater humility, borne out in the way in which we relate to one another in Christ. So, next, number four, and another reason for the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ is His resurrection, that He is greater than death, because we're told in verse 18 that He is the firstborn from the dead. And once again, this is a corrective to us, because we tend to think a lot about the cross, and rightly so. At our prayer meeting tonight, Beforehand, David was reminding us from Luke's gospel of some of the key events that happened at the cross, and the cross should always be uppermost in our minds, but we remember that Jesus then went to the grave and He rose again, and the the significance of the resurrection in our Christian faith, in the life of the church, can never be emphasized enough. And by the way, when Paul is saying here about the firstborn from the dead, that word firstborn, again, must not be confused. He's not saying that Jesus was the very first person to experience a a restoration to bodily life after dying because we know from Scripture and examples in Scripture that Elisha raises the child in, in 2 Kings chapter 4. We know that Jesus Himself raised people to life again like Jairus's daughter and Lazarus. But here is what is unique about Jesus and His resurrection. These other people were raised in a way that they were still subject to decay. Their bodies were still subject to decay that led to death once again. But the resurrection of Christ was the first of its kind, because He was raised as a glorious, incorruptible body that could never again suffer death. And so, His resurrection, and this is why it's important to distinguish it, don't think of Lazarus. Don't think of Jairus's daughter. Don't think of those other examples in Scripture, because you might be tempted to think, well, I can relate more to those people because Surely they were ordinary people like me, but don't think of their resurrection as being the template for your own at the final resurrection. Because Jesus is the template for those who are in Christ and, for the, and, and as to what we will experience at the final resurrection, that those who die in Christ will share in His resurrection And what hope there is in that for us as we face our ultimate enemy death? What hope there is in in, in that for us as we we feel weariness uh, and we feel symptoms of illnesses uh, and we feel our body subject to decay, our body not doing things in the way that we would like it to do? All of these problems, especially as we get older that become more and more commonplace. To know this about Jesus makes a real world difference to us here and now. Because our Jesus is supreme over death. It could not hold Him. And then number five, another reason for the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ, is that He is the Redeemer. And quite simply, nobody else could do what He did. So, that Paul is careful to explain not only what Christ did, but also why Christ was the only one who could do it. That's so important. Look at verses 19 and 20, "'For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace,' by the blood of His cross. And this redemption is far more comprehensive than we ever imagine or think about. We tend to think about redemption being purely to do with ourselves, but this is a redemption of all things in creation. And this gets us right to the heart of the gospel. What is required or what was required? It was peace, reconciliation, who alone could do it? Well, we we think of that phrase, we know it was only God who could reconcile us to Himself. And when it comes to Jesus, in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And how was it done? It was done through the cross, making peace by the blood of His cross. What an amazing thing that God Himself did this. But He didn't subcontract this out to someone else. Someone else can pay the price. Someone else can do this. But God incarnate, God in flesh, God the Son did this. And so what is your response to that this evening? And then one final thing that makes Him supreme, that makes Him preeminent, one final reason for us celebrating the supremacy of Christ is simply that he is supreme over everything. So that Paul sums this up in this great hymn by proclaiming Christ as being supreme over everything. I think the ESV puts it in verse 18, in everything he might be preeminent. Or the NIV puts it that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. Now what does this mean for us? as we come towards the end, because that has been a whirlwind tour through the the hymn that Paul gives us here in Colossians 1. But what does it actually mean for us as we think about this tonight? Because remember, this is not a lecture. It's not just about acquiring a head knowledge of the identity of Christ. It's not that you have to go off now and write an essay, give reasons why Christ is supreme, why Christ is preeminent? What does it mean for my life and your life tomorrow morning, this week, in this session of work and witness that lies ahead? Well, ultimately, understanding and accepting the supremacy of Christ changes everything, because Christ's supremacy should lead to our submission that's the simplest way to sum it up. Christ's supremacy should lead to our submission. And this is what handing our life over to Christ and trust of Him results in. First of all, it results in a new relationship with God. Verse 21, "'And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, "'doing evil deeds, "'he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death.'" in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And it should lead to a new way of living. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, what a challenge this is to us who profess Faith in the Lord Jesus tonight, because is this how your life and your walk with the Lord looks? If we lose sight of the supremacy of Christ, then we no longer submit to Him. And it is a terrible thing in our life. We know that. And the logical conclusion tonight is that if Christ and It is stated so clearly here, if Christ is supreme over everything, we should submit absolutely everything to Him. And so as we come into a new session here in churches, we maybe move into new stages of our life. As some of you this week return to school and return to routines, as all of that begins again, make Him Lord of every area of your life, big and small? And the question that with a repentant heart, the question that we must always keep before us is which areas am I trying to keep from Him? So there's a question to ponder tonight as you go home, a question to pray about, and I will pray about that as well. really will. Which areas of my life am I keeping from Him? Where is there a lack of submission? For He is supreme over all things. Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. And we worship Him now, singing together Corner.